Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure today to introduce Stefania Massoni, somebody that contacted me who had been listening to It's Rainmaking Time. And in a discussion with her, I realized that she had been training with two Kung Fu masters in New York Chinatown and had an unusual experience and expertise that very few women could talk about. Typically, Kung Fu is transmitted at the highest levels to men. And as a result of her being one of the first women I've ever heard of or met in Kung Fu, particularly in the United States of America, and the way she talked about her training was so fascinating, I invited her to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Stefania Massoni to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Hi, Kim. How are you? <laughs> good. Or I should say good afternoon, New York time. <laughs> It's all good. First of all, you've been involved as a fine arts painter. You are an interior designer with a background in feng shui, actually the ancient form of feng shui that never made its way to the U.S. called kanyu. And you're a mother of three. What were you doing in a kung fu class for 20 years? I've been asked that question so many times. I always had a passion for Asian culture, particularly Chinese. And I started that in high school doing martial arts for gym class. And as the years went on, I just never went back to it for one reason or the other. At one point, I was 28, I started late, or I restarted late for an athlete's timeline. And I just started the Kung Fu and never looked back. There was an inner drive that I never was able to explain. What were you doing in New York's Chinatown for 20 years? That's a long time. <laughs> It was a long time. I started out on one of the schools that was in New Jersey and sort of outgrew that in the sense that my appetite was rather insatiable in terms of knowledge. And so my teacher at that time sent me to his teacher who was in New York, Chinatown. And from there, I knew that I wanted to be with the, the top people who really knew their stuff and who taught in a traditional format. And what does that mean? Well, traditional format in a lot of not only ancient Chinese culture, or also many other ancient cultures, is that the true teacher won't accept any old pupil. And that means that you have to grovel. <laughs> you have to kind of beg and then be insistent. And sometimes the process is notorious for taking several years and worst case scenario, many, many years. And that was how I had to start it as well. I found a teacher who was a specialist in weaponry, which was the part that I didn't have. I had the forms and the other stuff, and he wouldn't teach me. It took about three years to get him convinced. After groveling with these big bad kung fu masters, and they finally decided they would teach a Lao Fan, which is a white woman. One of them confessed to me that women were taught Kung Fu in ancient times. Although it's a patriarchal art form, it was passed down father to son and uncle to nephew. But the exceptions would be if there was no son, a daughter would be taught so that the art forms were never lost. And that was a big consideration aside from self-defense. But then I found out that there was another exception which was not really spoken about. And that was that China's a, an enormous country, and the kingdoms, between kingdoms, there was an enormous amount of geography, and travel was very slow. It would take sometimes weeks, months to complete a journey, and the women would be left alone with their servants 
while the men were out traveling or on business, whatever they were doing. So ultimately, the lady of the palace was taught Kung Fu, and she in turn would teach her servants so that when the men were away, they would be able to defend themselves. And one of the things that they did was they would sew whips into their garments so that they could be pulled out at moment's notice, and many women became experts in what they called the double whip. And also the double daggers, which are these short daggers, were easily concealed in the folds of the fabric of their gowns. Same with flying darts, which are small metal darts attached to long chains or string. This I found out later. One of my masters did confess that, in fact, there were a handful of women who became very proficient in this. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, it always comes to the surface eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually. And this came to the surface, oddly enough, not because in the old Chinese form of teaching, you don't ask questions. You just are told things and you do it. But there's no question asking, question answer sessions. This came out just kind of as a side comment one day when the teacher, one of the exercises for balance and agility that we were taught is a cup on a saucer. And what you do is you stand with your horse stance, they call it, with your feet spread about two feet apart and your pelvis low, your thighs are parallel to the ground, and you hold a saucer and a teacup in one hand. And what you're asked to do is to rotate it above your head, around your back, back through your arm, and then up over your head so that you're doing kind of like a figure eight above your head and around your back. And this you have to do with both hands so that you work both sides of the body. And it's really strenuous. I mean, you start really sweating. And I said, what in the world? And one teacher said, well, you know, this was used for this and that. This was an exercise for the women improving their agility. Define what Kung Fu is and how it is distinct from other martial arts. Chinese is an animistic society. In other words, they define life through nature, animals, plant life. It's a self-defense that is based on the movements of animals, tigers and cranes, and through observing the animals, different established movements were put together, and it was used ultimately in combat. Are you dangerous? Yes. (laughs) Of course I'm dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) I better be nice. (laughs) I better ask the right questions and I better talk really good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some people are some of the most gentle people you'll ever meet. The true ones, you know, it's a gentle heart. Then why train with ancient Chinese weaponry? What's the point of that? I kind of stumbled into it. It was a part of the knowledge that I didn't have, and I wanted to complete the full spectrum. But what happened was they started teaching me double daggers, for example, which are two short daggers about eight inches in the blade and then the handle. They started teaching me that because it was a feminine weapon. They would teach the women the short weapons. And I found that it came very naturally. I remembered everything versus there were other parts of Kung Fu, which I had to go over and over in repetition. It was like a dance. I had to just keep going over the steps. But the moment I had a weapon in my hand, it was very natural. What does this mean that it was natural? (laughs) I didn't struggle to learn it. I do know what natural meant. I more meant, I wonder why it was natural to you. I don't know. I've searched my soul for this answer and kind of an oddity. So my only answer has been that I must have been some kind of 
warrior in a past life or in several lives. This is my deduction. That's what I thought. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, you go into karmic philosophy here. Talk about your training, how they trained you. I thought that was fascinating. Talk about your training to the audience. The training was absolutely grueling. It was my choice, however, let's be clear. Nobody was forcing me to do anything. However, once I was finally accepted as a student and only one of two female students at this level, it was absolutely grueling. And I was there, I was doing it seven days a week. You have to practice probably, I would say, twice a day, morning and evening, between breastfeeding. (laughs) Wow. And when we had class, we would have the normal class, and then those of us who were doing the weaponry would stay uh, a couple of hours later into the evening. And the teacher basically would show us the new moves, one, two, three, and he'd observe our homework, what we did, and if we got it, and then he would leave, you know. He would get himself a cup of tea and go on the phone, and we would basically be left in a room by ourselves for a couple of hours. How would you know what to do if you're left in a room by yourself for hours at a time? You have to figure it out. (laughs) Absolutely figure it out. (laughs) How many people were in a training class with you? On the higher levels, it would be maybe four, five, seven, eight at the most. But there's attrition, too, because it's a lot of work, and and not everybody is able to dedicate the time or the effort. But I would say of the longstanding students, maybe three or four tops. So what else happened in your training? What happened in the training was that I didn't realize it until one day I started to open up all my chakras and it was totally unconscious in terms of I knew what chakras were and everything, but one day I was practicing and I saw this big white light around my arms and I freaked out and I called my teacher over and he goes, well, you just happened to be in luck because we have a monk visiting from China who spent three years in a cave. I felt like I was in a comic strip or something. Wow. It was by coincidence, which we know there really is no coincidence. In fact, he was in the office talking to the teacher, and and he came over and he explained what was going on. So at that point, I realized the energy was shifting, and I was becoming pretty powerful. And the next question was, well, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, I went on to compete in tournaments throughout the world and then did that whole experience and decided that it was very corrupt and just said, I've got enough trophies for my ego (laughs) and kind of moved it into another level. How do they rank people in Kung Fu? Is it degrees like in karate? It's slightly different. They don't have belts per se, but the schools are all different because it's not standardized as the Japanese have. The Chinese are more informal in that, so it's mostly up to each specific teacher or master. But they do it more in terms of years and how many exams you've passed versus, you know, giving you a colored belt. Share with us what you shared with me on the phone about how you were blindfolded or how you were in a dark room. Do you remember? Oh, sure. Yeah, we got left in dark rooms to practice. It was part of the training, and I didn't realize it until later. I thought at first that they hadn't paid your electric bill. (laughs) So (laughs) they must not be going too well here, because a lot of these um, teachers in Chinatown are, I mean, it's... um, These are not situations where these are people who make a lot of money, and uh, they do it, mostly the really good ones do it out of a love for the art, and 
most of them struggle financially throughout life. And so anyhow, I thought that they hadn't paid the electricity. And that day I was practicing, they're called tiger hooks, which are metal hooks, which are about three feet long and they have a hook on each end and in the middle a crescent moon and you have one in each hand. And so they involve a lot of arm movement and it's tiring unless you're in shape. However, even in, when you're in shape after an hour, it gets very tiring. So the teacher said he'd be right back and he wasn't right back and it was getting later and later and I thought it was locked in the building. <laughs> I didn't know what time it was. The teacher finally came back and said, okay, you can go home now. And being in the darkness was a way to tune into oneself. Are you telling me he put you in the dark on purpose? Yes, yes. Well, were you doing moves or were you just sitting there? No, 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 movement. No, no, it was about two hours of movement. So that's how they train you. That's the old method of training is really through a lot of self-discovery and odd situations. You know, you think you're abandoned, but you're really not. It's a way of forcing you to evaluate on a deeper level what exactly you're doing and what kind of movement you're doing and inner movement, outer movement. It's an old technique, but it's not pretty. How did male students receive you? A lot of jealousy I had to navigate through, yeah. And even a couple of other females, too, there was some amount of jealousy. There was bonding, but there was some amount of jealousy as well. But it was just part and parcel of the training. Were you ever scared? Scared of what? Getting hurt. No. I've stabbed myself a couple of times, but no, not at all. Not at all. You spent many years as an interior designer also practicing feng shui, but the way you articulated, it's the very ancient style feng shui. Can you talk about That's that? That's correct. Feng shui is uh, wind water translated literally, and it was coined a little later. Can you was derived from the Bon, the B-O-N tradition, going back into Mongolia. So that's really, really ancient stuff. The Kanyu masters were used by the imperial courts, and they could only work for the imperial courts to design the Forbidden City and other parts of the kingdoms to control and mitigate the population. And so how did you learn that style of feng shui? And how did you find out about it? Why did it become part of your life? I found out about it through groveling to another teacher who began as a qigong teacher. And later he suggested that maybe I should start looking at feng shui, which he didn't want to teach me right away. So that was another test. He's the eldest of all my teachers, and he was the one who really taught me all that he knew with the Kanye. How is it different than the Western translated? We interviewed Angie Ma Wong, one of the first people that became known for bringing feng shui to America uh -huh. and bridging the East and West cultures. Uh -huh. And I'm wondering how you would articulate the difference between feng shui and Kanye in practicality. There's a lot of observing involved. Not all the rules and regulations some of the later schools had. There was kind of a branching off during time, and certain schools became specific in certain tactics, like, uh, magnetics so with the compass or the black hat. So it's kind of the grandmother before things started to become specific. It's kind of like doctors who have specialties, where before there was more of a general doctor, general practitioner. 
That's a good analogy. That was the explanation I was given by my grandmaster. So now you're working with color and healing. I am. Talk about that. correct. A lot of us right now are living in F-E-A-R, those initials, false evidence appearing real, fear. I'm trying to provide people with tools, and I tell them, you know, you've got a toolbox. I'm trying to give you some tools to navigate through your fear. And as they learn to navigate through their fear, they start to feel stronger, like Kung Fu Master. That flame in them becomes larger and more powerful. And so I found that through the use of color, which I was really good at in the fine arts, color really affects us in everything from the color of food we eat to the color of clothes we wear. The vibrations of each color define movement. And so I teach people how to use color appropriately. That's wonderful. I just did a piece with David Oshevsky from the Light Energy Company. We did uh-huh. three shows, one in 2004 and another one a couple of weeks ago and one other one on how to use light with healing and different uh-huh. frequencies of light and color. Exactly. Yeah. It's different focus, the light part. But the color part is fascinating. It is. And something interesting I was thinking about this morning, thinking about our talk today, was that I found that there were certain moments of my life in particular that I could wear certain colors and I can't wear them now. And I was thinking, why is it? Especially in Chinatown where they use a lot of red. We use red tassels on our weapons to optically divert our opponents to distract them. And um, so I was wearing a lot of red, and now I find that I'm pushed on more into the blues. And I was wondering, well, so when I'm talking to people, I've got to tell them why I can't wear red. But we're vibrating differently in different parts of our life, was my conclusion. How much of Kung Fu is instinctual? I would say maybe 60%. And how much is mental? The other 40? Um... Well, they try to get you out of a mental state. It's like dancing, really. I would say mental is much less, is maybe 5%, but they try to keep you out of your mental state because then you are not instinctual. Talk about your work with color a little bit. Give us an example of what you would do and why did the use of color become relevant to you? The use of color becomes relevant to me because we all react to color. And so what I find is that a lot of times people will be wearing colors which are not appropriate to their situation. And then they ask themselves, well, why didn't I perform well? Or why didn't people react to me the way I was expecting they would react? And all these things. I find color is not always instinctual in many people. And also how we perceive ourselves is very different than how others perceive us. So, for example, I assist people, men and women, to use according to their situation or their meeting or who they're meeting with certain colors. For example, if you notice in the service industry, there's a lot of blue and white. I would say people who are in finance use a lot of blue and white. People who work in airlines, service-oriented, a lot of blue and white in the airline uniforms. Those are colors of responsibility and colors that are seeking approval. They're colors which inspire trust. They're colors not to wear when you're trying to inspire trust, which is the other side of the coin, which, for example, are a lot of reds. 
yellow, red, yellow don't inspire trust. Those are holiday colors, for example, that inspire joy and love. When the blood pressure goes up, you know, they inspire that emotion. Many years ago, and I mean many years ago when I tell you, I was 24, and I took a class on using color and wardrobing. There was someone named Jennifer Butler who used to work with people on how to wardrobe so that your color supports who you are in your energy instead of detracts. So maybe someone with very intense energy, someone like me, should never wear red, for example. I'll give you an example. And how that would get in the way. And so when you're going to shop, you don't just shop based on what colors you like, but what colors on a frequency level are going to accentuate and complement and get the job done in communicating. Exactly. That's the way I see it, too. There is one element to it that you have to kind of personalize it because there's some colors, for example, as I was explaining years ago, I could wear red and now I can't really do a lot of red. There are colors that some people feel comfortable in innately and some that they just never will feel comfortable in. There are some people that can wear white and some people that can wear black and some people that can't conversely do white or black. And so you have to be kind of a little sensitive to what they're vibrating to as a person in general. Um, and then also work with the colors that are appropriate to what their goal is. It's a little bit of a fine line there. You're in nursing school right now. I am. You're going to bridge kung fu, nursing, feng shui, <laughs> and colors. They're going to throw you out of the hospitals. What are you doing? You're going to be the most mystical nurse they've ever seen. Uh, well, I've got a little bit of something for everybody. <laughs> I think that this is the world that we're moving into now is this new modality, this matrix where it's a rainbow and things that no longer work well. We're, we're supplementing with things that work better and merging them. And um, Eastern and Western medicine, certainly this has been an issue for a long time. I see myself as merging East being the bridge between East and West in terms of healing modality. And certainly Kung Fu has taught me to cultivate as a woman an amount of courage and perseverance that I would never have had, certainly. Nursing is the Western part, which I'm learning diligently. <laughs> but I think that there's going to be more and more need of this in hospitals as time goes on, and it's more acceptable. And I think it's slowly becoming more acceptable. I wish it was a little quicker, but it will be people who are in the medical field who have Eastern backgrounds on, on any kind of modality really is going to be a great benefit to people in assisting them to heal or if it's their time to pass over, to assist them to pass over to the higher light in a peaceful and confident way and in a loving way. That is what I see my role as. How have your children received you with all of your work in Kung Fu? What do they think about their mom? They were weaned on it. <laughs> are they little kung fu kids? They are indeed, yes. They break bricks and things like that. But they were brought up with it, and I see them as the future. Certainly they are my offspring, and they are the current generation who are the ones who are really going to be tweaking all this stuff. You know, I see myself as being part of the group of people 
who are born to bring it in, but that is a generation that will really get it flying high. How much does meditation come into play for being effective and masterful in Kung Fu? Do they teach you or tell you that you should meditate, or is that a separate thing that you've brought on and integrated with Kung Fu? It's definitely part of it. Also, it's breath control. Through meditation, you go into other things, but it's the basis for breath control and controlling one's emotions, too. You have to control your emotions when you do Kung Fu, especially when you get to the point where you can really snuff out a life. So what kind of breathing exercises do you do daily? Well, I try to remember to breathe, number one, because I find that with all the anxiety, most of us forget to breathe. I mean, literally, or our breathing patterns will be inconsistent. So I just try to remember to become conscious, even if I'm not meditating per se, but working through the day, I try to be conscious, oh, I'm breathing, there's my breath. That leads into greater feelings of calmness. But it's mostly just being aware of the breath, even in a meditative state. You just keep listening to that breath. Back in December of last year, we did a piece with Pamela Grout, who wrote the book, Jumpstart Your Metabolism, How to Lose Weight by Changing the Way You Breathe. But it was a remarkable book of breathing exercises and explanations. She lost a ton of weight learning how to breathe and realized that it was crucial to health, to decision-making processes, to overall well-being. It was really fascinating. Then when I did an interview with Omar Farouk Takbalek, who's an international musician who performs a lot in the Middle East, he talked about how he worked with the Sufi masters to learn how to breathe and how important breathing is, particularly for a singer. It seems like everything goes back to prana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It really does. Breathing and our heartbeat are the two things that have been with us all our lives. Those are the two things that we take so for granted, and myself as well, because in doing the nursing program, I, I got, you know, purchased my stethoscope, and I was fooling around with it, just seeing what I could hear with it. I'd always seen it around the necks of the MDs, and so I listened to my heart, and it sounds absolutely corny, but I thought, this is like really creepy. This thing has been going on for all my life. I mean, this is the first thing. This is my light switch and listening to the lungs as well. It was just, I had taken them both so for granted. And I think we all do, you know, we just expect to breathe and have a heartbeat, but it's really the basis for everything. Many years ago, a dear friend of mine said to me, the thing about breathing is that it goes on without you noticing much until you can't. And therefore, we don't tend to it because it's like a resonant program, always working behind the scenes, except it's not behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, or until you get bronchitis or something like that. And it's true. It's really true. I think to have to be a person, any kind of discipline that you may have, whether it be athletic or artistic or anything that involves diligence and perseverance, if we keep our breathing under control, we do better overall, which you know, there are moments when it's not possible. But if we begin to understand that it's there, then it becomes more possible. How do people reach you? Do you have a website? I do, goodfengshui.net, G-O-O-D-F-E-N-G-S-H-U-I.net. Right now, I'm focusing on something interesting, which I'm doing hour sessions on the phone to get people up and running or running better and um, out of their fear so that they find their own courage 
in these crazy times. Mostly it's talking about breathing and dressing and I'll ask them, you know, are you sleeping well or what kinds of foods are you eating? And although I'm not a nutritionist, nor do I claim to be, but I work it back to feng shui, although it's not really about moving furniture unless they really want to talk about it, which we can do that too. But it's trying to get more focus on the person. And then once I get the person understanding what they're doing, we can talk about what to do better. And then we can talk about the furniture. (laughs) But I'm trying to reel it in a little bit more to empowering the individual. Well, I really appreciate you joining us and sharing a little bit about your background and your 20 years in Kung Fu and about the multifaceted aspects of your life. And I also appreciate you listening to It's Rainmaking Time. Oh, absolutely. I'm your big fan, and I commend you on the work you do. I just find that you pour your heart into it, and I'm your cheerleader. <laughs> Thank you very, really very much. It. Please contact her at goodfengshui.net. Stefania, thank you again for being our guest. You're most welcome. Thank you.